Good morning. My name's Joy, and I'll be reading the gospel for this morning. The um, today's passage is from Luke's gospel, chapter eighteen, verses nine to fourteen, and it's on page eight five one in the church Bible. So, if anyone would like one of the Bibles, please put your hand up, and um, Tim or Sam will give you one. As Andrew said earlier that um, he was speaking about parables and stories and in Luke's gospel today he's, uh, he's talking about the time that Jesus spent with his disciples. So he has a story this morning and um, the particular one is about a religious leader and a social outcast. So we start at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, hi, friends. It's great to be with you this morning and to be opening up God's Word with you. Well, there's something about stories that we love, whether we're young or old, whether we're kids or grown-ups, whether it's in books or TV or movies, we love a good story. And one element of almost every good story is that there are good guys and bad guys. There are good guys and bad guys, the protagonist and the antagonist. Right? And in almost every story, it's pretty obvious who the good guys and bad guys are. Take this movie, for example, great movie, Cars. Has anyone seen this movie? Okay, a few in the audience. Uh, who are we going for in this movie? Shout it out. Lightning McQueen. We're going for Lightning McQueen and we want Chick Hicks to crash and burn. Okay, quite literally. Or these movies. Does anyone know who the good guys are in these movies? (laughs) Who is the good guys? Who are we going for? Who do we want to succeed? The minions. That's right. We want them to succeed. Even though they are villains, they are training to be supervillains, Gru and his minions, we're on their side. The storyteller places us on their side. They are the good guys in the story. We want them to succeed. I thought I should use an example to try to give the impression that I watch movies uh, that are for grown-ups as well these days. So there's this one, Top Gun, okay, Maverick and the Iceman. And again, the Iceman isn't exactly the enemy in the movie, not being fought against, uh, but we want Maverick to succeed. We're on his side in this movie. See, in almost every story we read or watch, the storyteller presents to us good guys and bad guys. 
Well, in Luke 18, that Joy has just uh, read for us, Jesus tells a classic good guy, bad guy story, but with a twist. As Andrew was saying, this story, this series is called The Twist in the Tale, uh, because many of the parables, in many of the parables that Jesus tells, there's a twist, there's a surprising, unexpected, dramatic turn of events. Uh, and one that shows us something surprising about what life in the kingdom of God is like, something that's different to our expectations perhaps or different to the way the world around us operates. And so this morning we're going to look at this parable in Luke 18 in three parts. Firstly, the tale, then the twist that comes at the end of the story, and then the truth, the big point that Jesus is making here with this parable. Uh, and we'll spend most of our time on that third one. And what we'll see is, is that it's a truth that lies at the very heart of Jesus' teaching. Right, I think this is probably why we're doing this as the first parable in our series. We, we must understand and embrace this truth if we want to follow Jesus. And if this is your first time at church or you're new to Christian things, this is a great week to come to church. We're seeing together what really is at the heart of what we're on about here as a church and what the Bible says. So first, the tale. The tale, as I said, this is a classic good guy, bad guy story. Verse 10, if you've got your Bible still open, have a look down at verse 10. We're told, two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now we have a very negative association with the word Pharisee today. No one wants to be called a Pharisee. But we have to get into the mind of Jesus' audience here. You see, the Pharisees were the most respected, the most esteemed, most honoured members of God's people. Everyone looked up to the Pharisees. They were the moral example. They were the gold standard of religious practice. If anyone was close to God... It was these guys. In today's terms, think the minister of a church, right? Or a, a bishop, an archbishop, a, a moral example to the rest of God's people that we all look up to, right? These guys lived righteous lives. They followed God's law better than anyone. And this righteous living comes across as the Pharisee prays. He thanks God for his faithfulness for his obedience. And there's no reason at all to suggest that he's not telling the truth here about his life. And he even gives glory to God for the person that he's made him to be. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not a robber. You've made me a man of honesty and integrity. And thank you that I'm not an evildoer. That is, I do good to my family and in the community. I've never hurt anyone or killed anyone. And thank you that I'm not an adulterer, he says. I've stayed faithful to my wife. I've kept my vows. He even fasts twice a week. Jews were only required to fast once per year. He's doing it twice a week. Uh, and he's generous, we're told. He gives 10% of all he gets. And at one point, he glances over to the tax collector. God, I thank you that I'm not like him. 
Now, if the Pharisees were the most respected members of society, as Joy alluded to, the tax collectors were the least respected members of society. And again, we have to get into the shoes here of Jesus' audience. Does anyone here work with tax collection in the ATO or anything like that? Anyone in tax? Not willing? Yes, we've got one, right? We respect you, okay? It is a good and honourable job, isn't it, to be involved in tax these days? Thank you. And to others who weren't willing to put up their hands. It is a good and honourable job today, not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Not only were they thieves, they they took money from people, more money than was owed. There was no regulation on this sort of thing or oversight. So they took more money than was owed from God's people. But more than that, they were traitors. They were working for the Romans, for those who were ruling over the Jews and often oppressing the Jews. And so while the vast majority of God's people were poor, were living paycheck to paycheck, were hoping they would have enough food to put on the table that night, the tax collectors were filthy rich and all because they had sided with the enemy, the Romans. And so everyone hated them. There's not really an equivalent in our society today. Uh, Perhaps a convicted criminal or maybe a murderer or an abuser, right? someone who is a despised, notorious sinner that none of us would want to hang out with or be associated with. And like the Pharisee, it seems like the tax collector is aware of his moral and social status as he comes to the temple to pray. Verse 13, if you've got your Bibles open still, verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And those listening to Jesus tell this story would have recognized straight away, this is a classic good guy, bad guy story. He's given the ultimate contrast. He couldn't have put it in any stronger terms. The Pharisee and the tax collector, the archbishop and the convicted criminal, they're your stereotypical good guy and bad guy praying at the temple. And in a way that you would probably expect them to pray. That is the tale that Jesus tells. But then comes the twist. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says, that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. To be Justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared right with God. It's a a courtroom image. It's a term, a a legal term. When the judge hits his gavel and says, not guilty, right? You are justified, exonerated, declared to be innocent, free to go. That's what it means to be justified. And it's the bad guy, the tax collector, who goes home justified, Jesus says. Now, we're not told the reaction of the crowd or the disciples, but I imagine there would be audible gasps at this point. But the tax collector, that traitor and thief who couldn't care less about God's law, he is not guilty before God, declared innocent, 
And we're told explicitly that the good guy, the Pharisee, goes home unjustified, an enemy of God. This man, says Jesus, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified. So in our terms, the the criminal, the abuser, justified, heading for heaven. And the archbishop, the religious moral example, unjustified, heading for hell. So that's the twist. That's the twist. So what about the truth? What's the point Jesus is making here in this parable? Well, there are some parables where we need to think really hard about this. What's the point here? What is Jesus getting at? Why is he telling this parable? Uh, But not this one. Not this one. This is an easy one because we're told straight up what the purpose of this parable is before the story even starts. Luke tells us in verse 9, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. See, the Pharisee goes home unjustified, unsaved, because he's confident in his own righteousness. And he looks down on everyone else. And the scary thing is that that describes the default mode of every human heart. All of us, apart from the grace of God, are characterized by those things. See, our natural default assumption is that God grades on the curve. Right, That we're all on this moral spectrum somewhere between good people and bad people. And like any test, it's a bit of a bell curve. Right, We know that there's some really good people out there. Right, Your Mother Teresa's, your super Christians, maybe your missionaries. The really good guys are at that end. And on the other end of the spectrum, we know there's the bad guys, the evil dictators, the murderers, the abusers. And in our minds, we position ourselves somewhere on this scale somewhere in the middle probably or slightly right of centre. I mean, we know we're not perfect. There's a lot more we could do for God. Uh, But we give it a good try. We try and be a good Christian. We're here at church most weeks. We even go to community group perhaps. We, We read the Bible sometimes and pray for ourselves. Certainly don't actively try and hurt people or insult people. And so based on our position on this curve, we feel like we're probably okay before God. We're doing okay in God's courtroom. We assume the cutoff point for a pass mark for entry into heaven is somewhere towards the left of that scale, right? Or at least to the left of us. And Jesus is saying here that this whole system of thinking, this whole way of thinking is completely wrong when it comes to how we're made right with God. It's just not how justification works at all. Instead of placing ourselves on this curve somewhere, Jesus places us here in the middle of the ocean needing a rescue. That is our position before God. Instead of pointing to our place on the curve, our good works, our good efforts, we need to cry out to God for a rescue, for a rescue that we don't deserve. 
That's what the, fa- that's what the tax collector does, doesn't he? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's crying out for rescue. That's what it takes to be justified, Jesus says. See, here's the big difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the Pharisee considers why God would accept him, where does he look? He looks horizontally. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them, those evildoers, that tax collector. Now, he's probably correct. As we've seen, he's not like them at all. He's not lying here. He's just looking in totally the wrong direction. He compares himself with others, and that's what gives him confidence before God. But when the tax collector considers how God might accept him, he looks vertically. He looks up to God. He considers how good he is not compared to others, but compared to God. And he sees how unworthy he is and he cries out to God for mercy. See, in which direction are you looking when you think about your own righteousness? We can so easily find ourselves looking horizontally, can't we? We wouldn't say it out loud like the Pharisee does in the story. But in our minds, we think, I think I'm doing better than them at least. I don't swear as much as he does. I don't gossip as much as they do. I'm, I'm more regular at church than most. It's when we look vertically that we realize we're completely in need of God's mercy. When we compare ourselves to God's own righteousness and his perfection, that we realize we're completely unqualified to be part of God's kingdom. And it's only once we've come to that realisation that we do qualify to be part of God's kingdom. Christian writer Dane Ortland talks about this as the counterintuitive dimension of the gospel. He says this, that in the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies us is knowing that we don't. And the one thing that disqualifies us is thinking that we do. Did you get that? The one thing that qualifies us is knowing that we don't. And the one thing that disqualifies us is thinking that we do. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's upside down. It's the opposite to our default human attitude as sinners. And Ortland goes on to say this. We tend to assume that in order for God to approve of us, really approve of us, we need to qualify. And at that moment, the gospel has shifted out of the burning fireplace of our heart and into the cold and dusty attic of self-contribution. A Christian is not someone who is enrolled in the moral hall of fame. A Christian is a happily recovering Pharisee. The Christians are those who see our own sinful hearts in the prayer of the Pharisee. Our tendency to look horizontally, to look down on others, to compare ourselves with others, to approach God holding up our good works and our good efforts. We see that sinful heart and admit that we need mercy, admit our need for rescue. 
like someone drowning in the middle of the ocean and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. All it takes is a willingness to humble yourself, to admit you're a sinner, that you're guilty in God's courtroom and ask God for mercy. And this is Jesus' own conclusion to the parable in verse 14, at the end of verse 14. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you are willing to humble yourself this morning, admit that you don't deserve anything from God. Ask him for mercy. You will be exalted to the highest position there is, a child of the living God, a beloved child of the living God. It doesn't get any better than that. And like the tax collector in this story, you can go home today justified, right with God. And so if you've never done that, if you've never prayed a prayer, that prayer or something like it, whether you're new to church or you've been here for 20 years, can I plead with you to make that prayer yours this morning? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, you may have realized, though, that all this presents a bit of a problem. And that is, how can God do this? Think back to the courtroom scene. How is it that he can call the guilty innocent? That he can let off guilty sinners like you and me? The guilt, if we saw this happen in any earthly courtroom, we'd be outraged, wouldn't we? We'd be angry. The guilty being declared innocent and set free. Well, the answer, of course, is what we celebrated last week. It's the cross. See, as Jesus tells this parable, he's on the way to Jerusalem. He knows where he's going and what he's going to do. Even though he's completely innocent, he's going to take upon himself the guilty verdict that you and I deserve. The right punishment and consequences that you and I deserve for our sinful life. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God is the just judge. Every sin that has been committed in human history will be paid for. The question is, by whom will it be paid? It should be us. It should be us. But for those who humble themselves and cry out to God for mercy, Jesus says, I'll pay it for you. I'll pay it for you on that cross. You can go free. That's the gospel. That's the good news at the heart of the Christian message. It's this truth that's so powerfully expressed in these words that are about to stand and sing together. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
upward eye look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, when Satan tempts us to despair this week, when he tells us of the guilt within, would you direct our hearts and minds to Jesus, who made an end to our sin, who took it on himself on that cross. And may we live this week in the joy and peace and freedom that that gives. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't humbled themselves and come to you for mercy, we pray that you would show them their sin and then show them their Saviour. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.